So again, I mean, I'm just always so impressed by the amazing stories of the individuals that we have on this show. We're, we're featuring Karen Sutton, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in sports medicine, who is just on an amazing trajectory. She is now on the board of directors for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. Uh, she's the team physician for, for U.S. Women's Lacrosse. She's also a, a team physician for U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Uh, she has an amazing passion for exercise and fitness. So she practices what she preaches in her own words, which I love. She really believes in a holistic approach to the athlete. She really spends a lot of time and has passion for treating female athletes. So we talk about some of the unique uh, challenges associated with that. Uh, it's, it's a great, great story on an amazing orthopedic surgeon. And I know you're going to like it. It's awesome. I am really excited. We're taking a little pivot here at the Ortho Show, and we're bringing you now Pitch Pro. We have an amazing group of panelists. Think of it sort of like a shark tank for orthopedics. Joe Mullings, Vin Dasa, the Fro, and the bearded one, Matthew Ray Scott, on a panel where medical device and pharma companies come in to pitch their story. We listen. We talk. We provide advice, and it is a hoot. We have amazing personalities. We provide amazing counsel and advice uh, to these groups. We are having a lot of fun. You guys are going to love it. Pitch Pro by The Ortho Show. From medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic space. We are very excited today to have Dr. Karen Sutton, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in sports medicine. She's in Connecticut. She's an associate professor at the Hospital for Special Surgery. She is the head team physician for U.S. Women's Lacrosse. She serves on the Sports Science and Safety Committee for U.S. Lacrosse as well. And one of my uh, favorite titles, which we're going to de- uh, dive into, is that she is uh, on the Women's Health Advisory Board for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. Karen, it is great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's fantastic. We know each other. We've spent some time on the professional education uh, road and, and travel show that we used to do pre-pandemic, but uh, not so much anymore. I know now it's all all virtual, but uh I think uh, I'm going to finally make my way down to Nashville. You're going to make it to Nashville for Anna? That's the game plan. Talking a few things, about a few things down there. It'll be fun. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to uh, making sure that we get that out for the uh, for the audience to know where you're going to be as well. So what we usually like to do, and you know, it's funny, as I was doing my research about you, Karen, I, I was shocked to see how much we have in common. So we usually, I don't know if that's a good thing or scary. No, 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 it's all good. I mean, we're 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 both. I, I like to say we're kind of Baltimoreans. I guess is probably the best yes. way to go. But you know, from from Maryland. But we usually like to start at the beginning and just sort of get a sense of of why you know orthopedists are drawn to to become orthopedists. When was it for you, or early on, that that you you thought that was a path that you might want to take? I think the first step into medicine was that my father was a cardiologist, and I used to trace and copy his EKGs with my fingers. I used to try to write in his 
nondescript handwriting and figure out what the EKGs were. And that was about at six. And then that started my career where I wanted to delve into medicine, sort of, if you will, with a divergence into veterinary school. But then when I got to medical school, I connected with a fellow Duke Blue Devil, Dr. Mormon, and we started some research on lacrosse injuries. And after working with him, that's when I started figuring out that this was a field that I was interested in, at least. Awesome. So you grew up in Columbia, Maryland. I grew up in Pikesville, Maryland, which is probably about 20 minutes away. And and it's interesting because uh, you and I both played lacrosse in college. I went to Tufts and you went to Duke. And so, you know, the the Maryland area was definitely a hotbed for lacrosse, for sure. Right? Early on for you, were you playing from as long as you can remember? Yeah, I think the funniest story I have is one of my buddies who played lacrosse at Maryland. We used to compete in the 50-yard dash in field day when we were in elementary school. And it was a point where he had beat me in fourth grade and then they had the fastest girl run the fastest boy in fifth grade. And I ended up beating him in fifth grade. And he said he'll never forget it, even amidst our booming careers at University of Maryland lacrosse and mine at Duke lacrosse. So, um, yeah, lacrosse has been a huge part of my life and really developed even to this day, the surgeon that I am. Yeah, no, you have great passion for it. And I want to talk about that too. So at Columbia, obviously, you know, the high school, you do great and uh, you're doing well in school and, and you go to Duke, you know, one of our country's amazing universities. And then if I'm not mistaken, if I think I did my history right, I think you were the first year for varsity lacrosse at Duke. Is that cool? Yeah, we were. How cool is that? That's had to be an amazing experience. <laughs> We went from uh, probably about three and eleven to going to the final four. My last year, yeah, I saw that. That's absolutely remarkable. What a four year! So it must have been just amazing recruiting at that point as you got going, and then being able to build that team together. You know, so you as the seniors, the four year seniors coming together to go to the final four, must have been really remarkable. It was amazing. We had just an outstanding group of young athletes, as well as a combination of good leaders. By the end, our coach was phenomenal. Kirsten, she really motivated us. And we just had this huge desire that year and we felt like we could get to the top and we really worked hard to do that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It's it's funny, you know, growing up in Baltimore for me, I was, I was really football and baseball all the way until like 11th grade. And then finally my geometry teacher, I'll never forget, it came over and tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, you're the starting halfback on the football team. We're going to put a stick in your hand. We want you to run as fast as you can and throw it into that net. <laughs> so, That's awesome. That was my junior year. Then I actually went to like five camps in between summer, between us, which was to try and get ourselves great. And one of my dear friends, Brian Fraden, played at Hopkins. And uh, and I wound up getting recruited to play at Tufts. So it was kind of fun. My left hand's always sucked. So I never really contributed that much because I played too late. Hey, if you can run fast, that's all you need. That's right. Exactly. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun for sure. And so then, you know, it's just so funny. You know, you and I grow up. We're not too far away from each other. And I think we're 13 years apart, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but you decide to come back home and go to the University of Maryland for medical school, which is exactly what I did as well. Mm -hmm. So. So how was, how was your four years at University of Maryland Medical School? It was phenomenal. University of Maryland Medical School really offered me a lot of hands-on opportunities. I felt like growing up, um, I played the piano, I horseback rode, I played lacrosse, played a lot of sports. And I always felt like I learned by actually experiencing what I needed to do. I think that's why I liked chemistry labs too, is you're just in there doing things. 
And I felt like University of Maryland, right away, you felt like you were engaged with patients. They had a great program our second year where we learned about patient care and we helped to shadow other residents as well as attendings and have a one-on-one interaction with patients. Then as you're getting to your third and fourth year, it's part of um, Shock Trauma, which is a level one trauma center, meaning it's a very aggressive trauma center. It sees a lot of really challenging accidents and um, patients that are going through a lot. And you really see what medicine's all about. And you can help from a great extent, even as a medical student, because with level one trauma, there's a lot that's needed for every single patient. Yeah, I have uh, very fond memories of of being up all night at Shock Trauma, and and of course the the pride of wearing the pink scrubs. Yeah, the pink right? scrubs. <laughs> they must have gotten a really big discount on those. I don't know. I don't know, but it was like you walked around in your pink scrubs, and you're like everybody's like, oh, they're the trauma crew. You know, it was like all cool. <laughs> I did always that. wonder if they were a little bit see through, so I always, I had like extra um, <laughs> undergarments on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's too funny. Never thought of that. But that's great. So was was Bernice Sigmund still the dean of the medical school when you were there? No, no, not at uh, that time. Uh, she must have just. Uh, it, uh, this is a real funny story, but she was the dean of the medical school, spelled the last way, same S I G M A N. She pulls me into her office the, my first day of medical school, and she says, "Let's be perfectly clear about this. When you introduce yourself, you are going to be Scott Sigmund." no relation. <laughs> and then, I know. And then four years later, of course, it's time for graduation. And she opens up her arms. She says, my long lost son, Dr. Scott Sigmund, come on over and get your diploma. So that's a, that was a great story. You earned sure. that. You earned that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I have very fond memories of, of Maryland for medical school as well. And and so from there, you go over to Yale to do your residency, which is an amazing residency mm-hmm. there as well. Were you drawn to sports medicine early in residency at that point because of lacrosse? Residency, I really tried to keep an open mind. I think just like when you're going through undergrad, medical school. So I I enjoyed all the subspecialties. And at Yale, it was really nice because it was a very one diverse group of residents and attendings. And so you got to hear different opinions from different people. And then we it was a smaller residency group. It was about five of us. And so we worked very closely with the attendings and each experience I I really enjoyed from hand to trauma, tumor. We had a great tumor experience. Um, So I think it developed as I went. And then later on, I had more of a sports experience and this just realized that I think what people don't understand with sports is that it covers so many different bases. You're not just operating all the time. You're really probably one of the most trusted sources for some athletes as they're going through an injury. And I just noticed how personally and from the even mental component, you can really help athletes to get through these challenging injuries. Yeah, no, that's been a message of yours throughout, which we'll get to as we move along. But then, you know, at that point you decide, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to do my sports fellowship and you go to Mass General Hospital, which is absolutely one of the kick-ass sports medicine fellowships. Mm -hmm. You know, you're taking care of the Bruins and the Red Sox. So I got to ask, because we've had a few people on, you know, Eamon Ferry, I think was the only (laughs) fellow in the history of Mass General not to get a ring. So please tell me you have a ring from one sport or another. Oh gosh, we we may we may uh yeah that that unfortunately I do not have a ring. Um, oh bummer, that's so. That's some like, of the teams were pretty close, but um, no matter what, I I got the most swag I think of all the fellows that I was there because I worked very closely with the Boston um, or the New England Revolution, the soccer team, and 
they were just so fun and so generous. And every time I covered a game, I got all this gear and clothing and my uh, co-fellows who worked with closely with other teams, they were like, why do you come back with all that stuff? I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'm a good doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. But yeah, no, it's so, it's so funny because all the kids that grew up in Massachusetts, like my kids are 18 uh, and 16. And it's like, they just think that you win the championship every year in Boston. That's all they know. So it's, uh, it, but wouldn't it, it's, it was an amazing year for you to be able to train with some of the, you know, amazing sports medicine attendings and be able to, because, you know, when, when you do a sports fellowship, to, there's not that many where it's truly game and team coverage, where you're learning the entire process of caring for these athletes. And so kudos to you for, for an amazing year, but that wasn't enough for Karen Sutton. She's like, no, I need some more. So you went over and I'm assuming you hung out with Min Coker over children and you did a sports fellowship at, at children's hospital in Boston. That must've been a lot of fun too. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I learned is Min Coker is truly an inspiration to, you know, young fellows or budding attendings. He just does everything. He does clinical well, surgery well, research well, academics well, family life well. He's just a, a, a really true inspiration. And he was a great mentor for me. And I, I still admire how he's able to, I never know if balance is the right word, but just really prioritize specific things in his, his life. And um, I think that's what I learned the most from him. Certainly, obviously, pediatric orthopedic surgery, but he, he's just an incredible person. No, he really is. He's a friend and, and colleague, and I refer patients to him routinely. So it's uh, only great things to say about men. And yeah. one of my favorite things about men is he, he figured out that darn adolescent ACL thing. He too, has. Right? <laughs> like, literally, you could just pull out the paper, and you can look yeah. at it, you know exactly what you can and can't do for what ACL you want to I do. use his drawings <laughs> all the time. I just used it yeah. in a talk last week. It's it's just fantastic. I'm like, if you fit into here, do this, fit into there, do yeah. that. You know, I'm a very objective person. So if you just put a diagram together, then I think we're all good with it. Yeah, it's funny for the listeners out there. So we worry about kids because they have growth plates. So are you going to disturb the growth plates when you're doing ACL? So Dr. Coker came up with this real cookie cutter way of being able to help you describe exactly which operation you should do for each individual uh, kid that has an ACL. So kudos to men. We love it. All right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, but let's go back to lacrosse because I know that's really such a great passion. What is love it right. like? We could spend the whole what time are, talking about that. I know. I'm sure. I'm sure. So what is it like to be the head team position for the U.S. women's lacrosse team? That's really cool. It's a privilege. It's an honor to work with a sport that you've had so much involvement with your whole life and passion towards. Um, I think the biggest thing that I get out of it is being able to put the athletes at ease. You know, they're going through a lot of tryouts, a lot of um, selection periods. Almost the whole time I'm with it, them, they're always being evaluated, except for probably the two weeks that they finally are at the World Cup. And I'll always see an athlete come over to me and I'll give her a pat on the back, you know, pre-COVID where we could actually interact more, but even a quick smile. And I think a lot of the athletes have come back and said just, you know, what a calming source I was during that time. Cause I am obviously um, not biased in any way towards which athlete is being selected. I just want them to do well on the field and feel comfortable, feel healthy. The second thing with lacrosse is that they're very open to treating the whole athlete. And I think this goes both with us lacrosse as well as us ski and snowboard. And that's why it truly is a privilege and an honor to work with these organizations where they understand that these athletes need nutrition. They need sports psychologists. They need physical therapists. They need, um, orthopedic surgeons, primary care doctors, concussion management. 
and they really involve the whole team as we're working with the athletes. Um, so that's, I, I just, kudos to these organizations for really looking at the whole athlete and not just t- taking them injury by injury. And and that's a great point because at the end of the day, you know, wh- if you do these fellowships and you take care of all these high-end athletes or the time in which you're on the field with your ski and snowboarders or with the lacrosse people, you know, it's a limited number of time and it's a limited number of patients. But what I think that I'd love to hear that our listeners hear from you in particular is how you apply that to your regular patients back home in Connecticut is how you're taking care of them. I think it's the same. I can think of a couple of girls that I saw this week. I, I saw one girl who I had reconstructed her ACL a couple years ago. And just as she's returning to sports after COVID, she did some lacrosse practices and unfortunately tore her other ACL and certainly was absolutely devastated. But the mom called me the evening that it happened and got me on call. And I was talking to her on the phone and I think she said it just put her daughter at ease to at least know that I was going to see her the next day and we would get through this together. So first I would say um, I look to these athletes and I can understand and not specifically relate to an ACL injury, but understand the passion and the drive that they have to get back to that sport. One thing that I find really important is I really encourage the athletes to still be a part of the team. And a lot of coaches around here will support the athletes in terms of whether they're being a manager or helping to, you know, mentally cheer the team on as they're going through um, state championships or whatever competitions they're doing. Um, So I I try to relate to the athlete and understand what their passions are in life. That's my first question is really try to listen. And the second thing is trying to understand how the injury happened, but, and fixing it, but then how can we prevent that in the future? And that is with a lot of strength and conditioning training. Sometimes somebody does need inserts in their shoes I'll talk to them all the time about nutrition. Um, are they, for female athletes specifically, are they having their periods or their menses um, to delve into to see if they have something called the female athlete triad, which um, can be health factors for these female athletes. So I, I like to spend a lot of time with them and understand their overall health and well-being. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And, and it's sort of a great segue because I know that you really do have a passion for treating female athletes and having been there, lived it yourself. And you can really, uh, you know, empathize with these athletes when they have these types of injuries. So, you know, especially for the listeners out there, especially who may not be in the orthopedic world per se, my mother's always listening. So I always, always say, you got to be able to communicate. Hi. So my mother understands. Hi, Bob. And so, so, you know, what are some of the unique challenges for female athletes? I mean, we, we all know that it's ACLs are absolutely epidemic at this point. I did four ACLs today, believe it or not, before coming on. Everybody after COVID, unfortunately, is not in as good a shape as they mm-hmm. could have been. And so we're seeing a lot more injuries that way. But no, specifically for female athletes, what are some of the unique challenges or concerns that you have when you're caring for them? The first concern is as athletes are going from stage, the pre-puberty stage, so maybe around nine, getting into 10, and then female athletes are getting into their pubertal stage, which is 11 to 14. It's getting a little bit earlier these days. There is a change in hormones, whereas the boys start getting testosterone, the girls are producing more estrogen, which leads to the potential of getting fat in certain places in the body, such as the hips and the stomach. Um, The hips tend to get wider. They start their periods and that can take some energy away from the body. So the body is not producing muscle the same way it does in boys. The muscle is produced 
in more the quad or the front muscles of the leg and the back muscles of the leg, such as the glutes and the hamstrings, they tend to suffer as female athletes are going through puberty. The other thing that can happen, especially in athletes who are playing sports where image can slightly be a factor, gymnastics, figure skating, they start to see that their body may be putting on a little bit more weight during puberty. And it's difficult because some of the activities they need to do, such as um, uh, just some of the floor routines in gymnastics or some of the jumps they're doing in figure skating require that their body was a little bit more agile. And so it's a challenge for them to work towards doing some of the th same things they did before they were getting their pu their periods. And that can be a challenge. So we see it a lot in how the body changes, how the body metabolizes nutrients. Um, so we, we do have to work a lot harder during that phase to keep these athletes healthy, as well as avoid any type of eating disorders too. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a wonderful, and we appreciate the time that you, you put into that. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it can often be that we focus on an ACL, whether it's a, a boy or a girl, man or a woman, we're just going to fix the ACL. But at the end of the day, there's a person, there's a lot of other things happening around and uh, providing the support, as you talked about, nutritional support, strength and conditioning, the mental support that's required. I love the idea of having these athletes be a part of the team, even during their injury. I think that really keeps them a part of what's happening. So really, you know, sage advice. And, you know, we appreciate appreciate that for sure. So, you know, one of the things about you too, which we we all respect, Karen, is that you're like, you know, look, I'm not asking you to do anything that I won't do. So, you know, <laughs> so like, you know, you're like this fitness, you know, fanatic, you're like running triathletes, you're comp, you're competing, but, what, but also part of your social media branding is that, you know, you're showing people like, this is what I do. Um, this is what I'm asking you to do. This is what I do as well. And so obviously that's a passion for you. So what are your thoughts on that? I like this, to use the saying, practice what you preach. And strength and conditioning was a huge part of my life, starting from, I would say, sixth grade. I used to go to the gym with my dad. At, um, it was probably 6 a.m. before middle school, and then I'd walk over to middle school. And I felt so empowered by the muscles that were forming, and I, I felt like I could see the result on some of the field sports that I was playing. I worked out with some of the swimmers. That evolved to in high school, I would go to the gym and work out. It was all boys at the time. So with the football players and soccer players, and that was just part of what I did. I mean, it was, uh, you know, walking into the gym. And then probably one of the funniest stories is when I walked into Duke. And as you mentioned, we were uh, the first varsity lacrosse team at Duke meeting the strength and conditioning coach. And, um, you know, he was looking down at me and like, oh, who's this blonde girl that's going to come in here and bop around in the gym? And, you know, I knew I had to earn my stripes because the basketball team's right next to me and um, all these amazing athletes. And he saw me in there every day, just doing my core exercises, doing my squats, bench, all the exercises that were needed for me to do everything I could do on the field. And uh, by then in my career there, he was like, you know, you really are an inspiration in the weight room. And I'm glad you motivated your athletes to do the same. And I take that vision and realized I actually played and started every game that I was in at Duke. And I think part of the reason was the time I spent in the weight room to keep those joints protected and the bones protected by doing strength and conditioning and building muscle. When the athletes come in with a specific injury, even if it's a toe injury, an ankle injury, I will talk to them and ask them what their strength and conditioning routine is. Are they working with a performance coach? How are they getting their performance training? <clears throat> because I think that that increases the longevity of the career as well as decreasing decreases any acute injury 
that may happen. And I have a lot of fun talking to them about all the different exercises. And I'm always up for um, sometimes some of the performance coaches will invite me over to their gym and just say, hey, I want to show you a few things or put you through a workout. And um, they definitely like to challenge me, but um, I'm, I'm up for the challenge and I like to see what's new and uh, what these athletes are doing out there. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very obvious. I mean, those of us that follow you, it's, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you're working out hard like that because that ain't happening for me anymore. That's for sure. But no, it's great. To, it's great fun. Great, great to watch. So one of the other things that you're doing, which I'd love to hear more about, which is the, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the Women's Health Advisory Board. So what's your role there? What's the mission? What's happening? Sure. So with the Academy, my current role is I'm on the board of directors for the Academy. Um, the roles I had before, one was on what's called the Women's Health Advisory Board. That's now changed into the Diversity Advisory Board. The key roles, I would say, first starting with the Women's Health Advisory Board was just to make sure when people did research or treated patients, they realized that there can be some differences um, in female patients than there can be for male patients. Some of those include the bones may be weaker due to osteoporosis or osteopenia. Uh, women are prone to different types of um, orthopedic pathologies, such as frozen shoulder, um, prone to getting hip fractures um, in settings, especially if they do have osteoporosis. So really getting an understanding for orthopedic surgeons as they treat women or females differently um, and just understanding, not treating them differently, but understanding that there may be differences between the two. Then getting into the diversity advisory board, that spans anywhere between increasing the diversity specifically in orthopedics. You know, we um, right now we're about 6% um, board-certified orthopedic surgeons who are women, um, as well as getting more minorities into orthopedics too. Um, so we're working on how we can create more opportunities for a diverse orthopedic group. And that also spans too to, as we're treating patients, really understand the background from patients. And people may come, you know, we have patients from the Middle East who may, the woman may need to have a female physician. Um, so they're, they're very there's cultural differences that happen with everybody. And I think we just need to be aware of that. And that trends through research, that trends through academics, as well as clinical care. And those have been great opportunities for me to make a change and, and get out there what's happening in the diverse world of orthopedics. So congratulations on the board of directors. I, I, I very rarely miss my research, but I did. It just started. One. It just started. No, just started. Okay, so I don't feel so bad. That's I've, had, I've had my but second uh, introductory meeting. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's yeah. amazing to hear that you're on such a great trajectory through the Academy. I'm sure that will lead up as well, perhaps even maybe one day, Madam President, we'll see. But, you know, uh, tell us about TV the board of directors. Yeah, and I'll have TV. to get a hairstylist if, I, if that <laughs> yeah. happens. Oh, good. We'll make sure we got the video on for that one, too. Yes. Uh, so what about board of directors? Is, that a, is it overwhelming? Does it seem like it's a, a large responsibility? Tell us. The board of the directors, board of directors has been great. The Academy really starts to go through an introductory process. I would say even to be nominated and then selected to be on the board of directors. I've been back and forth with the powers that be at the Academy, and it's a pretty stringent selection period. Then those of us who are new members are going through training periods. Right now we've had two, two and a half hour meetings where we go through all the rules and regulations of the academy, what happens from governance to, um, you know, just working with the PAC or the um, political action committee, 
for orthopedics and understanding who we are representing. So going even into who are the people in the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, because even that spans from MDs, DOs, PAs, there's a lot of different people involved and we need to understand who we're representing. The other thing that comes out is conflict of interest and making sure that you know we are appropriately using our thoughts as we're voting on different things and that we're not biased in any direction. And it's been great. I think they do a really, really good job of giving us some background. And I didn't know what we were going to be talking about for two weeks at two and a half hours, but now I know. Well, that's amazing. Well, thank you, first and foremost, for for taking on that challenge, which is our academy, which is super important for us to have a voice and and to make sure that we are uh, all practicing good medicine and following a great path. So we appreciate your time and energy in that regard, for sure. Thanks. So, it's, a, it's a great opportunity, and I'm very grateful for it. No, that's that's amazing. So before we go, I want one last thing because. You know, I'm a big social media guy. I'm a big believer in a brand of who you are as an orthopedic surgeon and how you show yourself. Some people are, you know, really into techniques and they show technique videos and other people are into uh, sort of educating patients. I think you have a really interesting sort of holistic approach to, to what you're. So how would you describe your brand? What are you trying to message as you're, you're talking to your patients and fellow colleagues out there in the big wide world? My message to get out there for my patients would be to keep moving. I think inspiring people to keep moving. And um, some people of my patients may have to change from being a big runner to being a cyclist. But when a patient's come, patient comes in to see me, I like to hear what they're doing at the time and you know, spend a lot of time seeing if there's something else that they can be involved with. I've had a lot of patients go into Pilates who have really enjoyed that. And I think the message is really life is about movement. It's about being excited to get outside. I am a big outside person. So a lot of my workouts involve being outside. I had the pleasure of taking care of the U.S. ski and snowboard team, um, the downhill team out in Austria in January and had some amazing hikes through the Austrian Alps. And it's just incredible what mental positive energy being outside does. So I would say that's part of it. And then I also think you know, I like to give glimpses into the research that I'm doing in an ACL reconstruction. And then a lot of people will come to me too and just say, hey, look, that looks interesting what you're doing. And one of the hashtags is I look like a surgeon. A lot of people will have this image of who a surgeon is and whatever that is. I just want to make sure that people see that surgeons are from all different walks of life and we look different. You know, we can be completely diverse in our appearance, our background. And I think that's important for people to see too. Yeah, well, I think your message is being heard loud and clear. You know, this is what we do here on the Ortho Show. We try to bring you the amazing stories of unique orthopedic surgeons from around the world. And Dr. Karen Sutton has an amazing story. We want to thank you so much for your service to the Academy, uh, for all of your special attention to the female athlete and to lacrosse and all of the great things that you've been doing. And, and really want to thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.